Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A lot of people on Wall Street probably took today off. After all, yesterday was the 4th of July. Market was closed. On Wednesday, they closed the markets early in preparation for the July 4th holiday. So when you have a Friday where the markets are open, but then you have a Thursday where they're closed, Most people probably left for the Hamptons on Wednesday afternoon. And so we're not in their offices or down at the stock market uh, when we released the non-farm payroll numbers today. The June number, highly anticipated as always, especially with a rate cut on deck now by the Fed. And most of the people that were probably handicapping the jobs number thought that it would probably come out weaker than expected. After all, most of the data we've been getting has been weaker than expected, in particular the jobs numbers, which had been weaker, including the ADP report that came out on Wednesday on that uh, holiday-shortened trading session. We got a disappointing number. The consensus for private sector employment for ADP was 140,000. And we ended up with 102,000. So we had a significant miss uh, in the ADP numbers. But also, if you look at the employment components of some of the other numbers that also came out weak on Wednesday, like the ISM non-manufacturing index, which printed 55.1 versus a estimate of 55.8, the employment component of that index was notably weak especially for small businesses, which had a major reduction in jobs, not only of this month, but of the previous month. In fact, I read a tweet by Dave Rosenberg, who pointed out that he hasn't seen uh, back-to-back monthly declines like this since, I think, February, March of 2008. That was the year of the financial crisis. And he basically said that small business job growth is the weakest in over nine years. Now, small business job growth, that is the heart 
of the job market, right? That's where most of the jobs are created. They're being created in small business. So if you look at a lot of the other data that's been coming out that might reflect on employment, you might have thought that there would have been a weak number. Look at the factory orders number that also came out on Wednesday. They were looking for a drop of 0.5 in factory orders, and instead the orders dropped by 0.7, so a bigger decline. But they revised the prior month's decline from down 0.8 to down 1.2. So if factories, if orders are declining in factories, you may think that manufacturers need fewer workers to deal with declining orders. So I think all of the recent anecdotal evidence had suggested that the employment report Uh, would disappoint. And I think the markets were already anticipating that, but we got the opposite. The report was generally stronger than the markets had expected, and the markets reacted uh, as a result. The number that we got, the consensus for job creation for June was 165,000 jobs. Now, if you recall, the prior month was way below estimates. We got 75,000 was the initial estimate for May. And instead of 165,000, we ended up with 224,000 jobs. So much better than what the forecast was. In fact, nobody had a number that high. In fact, if you look at the general range, uh, it was 135,000 on the low end, all the way up to 205,000 on the high end. So the number we got actually exceeded the highest estimate that any credible analyst, I guess, on Wall Street had for the June number. And of course, as soon as the market saw this print, uh, that was it. The bond market got clobbered. uh, Gold got clobbered. It was down like 25 bucks right away. The dollar uh, soared. You had a big jump in the dollar index. And the markets all of a sudden... Uh, repriced the odds uh, with respect to the rate cut that is going to happen in in July. Now, coming into this job report, there was 100% probability of a rate cut. There was an 80% probability that there would be a 25 basis point cut and a 20% probability of a 50 basis point cut. Now, I didn't believe that we would be cutting by 50 basis points. I believe that we'd be cutting by 25 because that's what everybody expects. Uh, If if there's an 80% probability of a 25 basis point cut and only a 20% probability of a 50 basis point cut, the Fed has no reason to move by 50 basis points. They can meet market expectations by only cutting 25 and they leave more bullets in the chamber because they know they're going to be firing them. And so when you're starting your rate reduction cycle at two and a quarter to two and a half, uh, you want to move slower uh, because that gives you, you know, more rate cuts. Now, I know at one point I said that I thought that it was possible that the first rate cut may mean the Fed goes all the way back to zero. But remember, when I made that forecast, it was conditioned on the Fed not cutting rates at all until the economy was already in recession. And my reasoning was if they waited that long, if they wanted to maintain the pretense that the economy was great and they waited until an official recession had begun to cut rates, that they would have to go all the way to zero because uh, you know a small reduction would, would be meaningless in an environment where we're already in a recession. But to the extent that the Fed is acting preemptively, which is what they're doing, they are trying to preempt 
the recession. They believe they're taking out an insurance policy against the recession. In this environment, then they don't have to go all the way back down to zero. They can do the 25 basis point cut, but it's not going to do anything. And they're still going to have to do more cuts until we are officially in recession. And then wherever rates happen to be, by the time we have to acknowledge we're in recession, well, then the Fed's going to take them all the way to zero. In fact, who knows? They may not even stop at zero. They may try to go below zero. But the one thing we know that they will do to try to have a bigger impact is do a much larger round of quantitative uh, easing than they did before. But following the release of this better-than-expected headline print, the odds changed. Now, the odds of a 50 basis point cut are zero. And the odds of a 25 basis point cut, I think, are around 91%. So there's actually now a 9% chance that there's no cut at all. Now, I think that that's very unlikely. Obviously, a 9% chance is still a low probability event. I mean, if there's a 91% chance of a cut, then pretty much the markets expect a cut. And I expect the Fed to deliver on that expectation. If you remember my last podcast, I said the only reason I thought that the Fed may do 50 would be if we got a really bad jobs number today and the market started pricing in 50 instead of 25. Again, the Fed would want to live up to the market's expectations and not risk a disappointment, which is again why I don't believe that the Fed will not cut because the markets are expecting a cut and the Fed is going to deliver one. But the Fed is going to have to do more than just deliver a cut because the markets need a lot more than a 25 basis point reduction because this is a bubble. This is a bear market in disguise, even though we made new record highs this week in some of the averages, uh, but not others. I mean, beneath the surface, stocks are a lot weaker than they appear, and they're only up here on life support. But for the actions of the Fed, we would be much lower. And the economy is weakening, you know, this jobs report, the June jobs report, notwithstanding, which, by the way, is no big deal. I mean, 224,000 jobs is not a big deal. First of all, they did revise last month's down to 72,000. Now, that's not a big reduction from the 75,000 that they reported initially. But if you go back to last month, when that initial 75,000 number came out, much, you know, way below the expectations, Everybody was saying, oh, well, they'll probably revise it. Let's not believe this number. I mean, they're probably going to go back and revise it higher. So there was a lot of people who believed that the 75,000 number would be upwardly revised. It wasn't. In fact, it was downwardly revised. I mean, not a lot, but based on expectations for an upward revision, the downward revision is significant. And in fact, there was a slight downward reduction to the prior month as well. So this is not good news. If you Certainly, you can factor that in with the 224,000. In fact, even my 16-year-old son, Spencer, who will be uh, 17 next month, I know a lot of you have started to follow him on Twitter. He's almost up to 2,000 followers. But I mean, I just read on his Twitter, he pointed out uh, that uh, the job growth, again, he added up all the years. And this year is on pace for the worst jobs growth since 2010 total numbers so who this is just one month in a very weak year and in fact it's already if you take the first half of the year right the job growth in the first half of this year is the weakest it's been since the first half of 2010 
So, I mean, Trump is talking about how this is a jobs boom and he's the jobs president, yet you don't see it in the jobs creation numbers. And in fact, one of the reasons that the 224,000 number was so high was because there was a record increase. I think it was a record, but it was a big increase in the number of people working second jobs. So a lot of these new jobs went to people who already had a job. Now, what does that mean? If you're taking on a second job, well, maybe you only have a part-time job and you added another part-time job, or maybe you had a full-time job and you added a part-time job. Uh, But why? Why would somebody that has a job get a second job? Well, because they're struggling to make ends meet with a job that they have. I mean, most people don't want to work two jobs. I mean, let's face it. Most people don't even want to work one job, but they have to, right? Because they want to eat. They want to pay for all the things that their family needs. They need to pay the rent or pay the mortgage or they got to support their family, right? So people have to work, but they also value leisure. And to the extent that you're going to take a second job, you're giving up something that you value, your free time. And so why is it that somebody would go out and take a second job? Well, probably because they're struggling, right? They need the extra income because the cost of living is rising and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're struggling uh, with a bunch of debt. So it's not a good sign uh, that people need to moonlight and get, and get a second job. And in fact, a lot of these jobs anyway that are being created are low-paying jobs, part-time jobs. These are the same lousy jobs that were being created under Barack Obama. The trend is continued under Trump. Trump was criticizing all these crappy jobs when he was running for office and promising something better, but now he's heralding these same crummy jobs. Of course, he doesn't admit they're crummy anymore, uh, but nothing has really changed. Looking at the rest of the number, the unemployment rate ticked up. I mean, so now we're at 3.7%. Granted, we're still low, uh, but we're above the 3.6% from the previous month, and we're above the 3.6% that was expected for the, the current month. We did get uh, a little bit of a bigger increase uh, in manufacturing jobs than had been expected, uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's still only 17,000 jobs. The consensus was just 2,000. 3,000 was what was created the prior month, but again, average those months together, and you get pretty pretty anemic growth in manufacturing. Labor force participation ticked up a little bit, 62.9 from 62.8, really just a bunch of noise. Uh, we've been going up and down between those numbers, 62.8, 62.9, pretty much for the entirety of the Trump presidency. I don't see any real significance there. Average hourly earnings, they were expecting up 0.3. We got up 0.2. The prior month was up 0.2. We revised it to up 0.3, really nothing. Although year over year, uh, the increase in average hourly earnings up 3.1% versus 3.2% expectations, slightly weaker. But again, I think the cost of living, despite what anybody wants to say, is rising faster than 3.1% per year, which means that families are falling behind, which again is another reason why people would take a second job, why, you know, why you need an extra income because the income you have now doesn't go as far as it used to. So all in all, I mean, despite the 224,000 print on the headline number, there's nothing really strong about this report. And then we know that the number could easily be revised down next month. I mean, none of these numbers are are written in stone. I mean, they change them all the time. Uh, So how could you put much uh, uh, stock into any number? Now, one of the reasons that we might have had the big reactions is because trading was probably thin 
due to the fact that I said a lot of people took the day off and just had a long weekend for the 4th of July. And that's probably why you got some uh, bigger moves. Some some of these moves tapered uh, over the course of the day. Now, gold was down, as I said, about 25 bucks right away. And it only finished down uh, about 15 bucks, 16 bucks on the day, uh, just below, I think, 1400 uh, 13.99 is something like that. So just slightly down uh, overall on the week. The dollar index, which spiked immediately uh, after the uh, the number came out, gave back some of its gains, but still a solid up day on the dollar index, settling around 97.23. Big moves again in the bond market. The yield on the 10-year back above 2%. We were down below. Uh, we closed the day and the week. Uh, at two spot 048 for the yield on the 10 year, the yield on the 30 year now at two spot 549, that yield curve narrowing ever so slightly now on the long end. So I think that whatever happened in the market today as a result of the, the jobs number, all of it was noise. I don't think today's report changes anything. I don't think it evidences that the economy is any stronger or any weaker for that matter, uh, than anybody might have believed prior to getting this number. Uh, I think the economy is still weak. In fact, based on the, uh, the numbers that we got earlier in the week, you know, the, both the Atlanta and New York Fed had come down in their estimates for Q2 uh, GDP. And in fact, you know, if you look at the current estimates for uh, GDP in the second quarter, and you average that with the GDP from the first quarter, the average growth rate for the first half of 2019 would come out at 2.2%. Now, I think there's a pretty good chance that both the Atlanta and the New York Fed are wrong, and second quarter growth actually comes out less uh, than what they forecast. But assuming that they're correct, then 2.2% is the annualized growth rate for the first half of 2019. And Trump is out there saying, hey, this is the greatest economy in the history of the United States. Well, not only is it not the greatest economy in the history of the United States, it's not even the greatest economy if you only count Obama as the history of the United States. If you just look at Obama's terms, the economy today is weaker than it was when Obama was president. Because in 2012, first half GDP grew by 2.45%. That's faster than 2.2. And in fact, in 2012, in the first half of the year, the economy grew by 3.3%. That's like, what, 50% faster than it grew in the first half of 2019. So if the economy grew 50% faster in 2012 than it's doing in 2019, how is this the strongest economy ever when it's a lot weaker than it was in 2012? In fact, it's already a slowdown if you compare the first half of 2019 to the first half of 2018. It's a 30% slowdown from where we were a year ago. So the economy today isn't even as good as it was last year. And of course, the other thing that you have to consider is the record amount of stimulus that is being required to produce this rather weak economy. We have more uh, um, fiscal stimulus than ever before, if you want to look at the size of the deficits, the, do the dollar size, and we've got monetary stimulus, right? We have the Fed implicitly easing. Even though they haven't cut rates, they've promised to cut rates, 
mortgage rates have collapsed. Long-term interest rates have gone down. That is a massive monetary stimulus, even though we haven't actually had a rate cut yet. So the economy is getting all this monetary stimulus. It's getting all this fiscal stimulus, and it's barely growing. Of course, it's not even growing at all. It's simply a bubble. But to claim that we have this great economy when the numbers are this bad and so much stimulus is required to produce numbers that aren't really good. In fact, the only real thing that they've got is to point to the low unemployment numbers. But if you simply look at a trend of the unemployment rate and you look through the Obama term and the Trump term and look at a line, again, you can't tell where the Obama economy ends and the Trump economy begins. The trend that was in place under Obama has merely continued under Trump. It hasn't accelerated. The curve hasn't bent. It's the same line. Right? That's pretty much the same for all these statistics. You can't tell. Trump is simply continuing the failed policies of Obama, yet claiming those policies are a success, simply because he's the president now instead of Obama. So I think the market reaction was just a bunch of noise today, particularly when it comes to the U.S. dollar and gold. Uh, so I do think that we will reverse these moves. I expect gold to continue its upward move. And I expect the dollar to trend lower until it ultimately breaks lower in a hard way. I mean, so far, the dollar has not really broken down, uh, but I think it will. It's just a matter of time before investors accept a reality that they have been denying for years. I mean, it's hard in the Forex market. It's kind of like, you know, turning a battleship. It turns very slowly. But once it turns, look out uh, because there could be a lot of damage that's going to be done. Now, speaking about damages being done, I was listening to an interview today. Rick Santelli was able to speak with Judy Shelton. And I, you know, I used to be on Rick Santelli's show quite a bit until CNBC decided to blackball me from their network uh, over two years ago. His was the last show that I was scheduled to do uh, when the network abruptly canceled my appearance the day before I was supposed to be on. And nobody from that network has called me since. But in any event, he had Judy Shelton on. Maybe they would have me on if I was nominated to the FOMC. Although, A, that's never going to happen. But B, even if they did nominate me, I wonder if CNBC would still have a reason not to interview me. Uh, but they interviewed Judy Shelton. And the controversial aspect about her is her support for a gold standard. And, you know, if you listen to Judy Shelton talk, I mean, she's a very intelligent woman. I mean, she's probably smarter than any of the people that are on the FOMC now. So it can't hurt to have her up there, right? I mean, because she clearly knows more than the people who are already there. And so as far as Fed picks are concerned, I mean, she's a good pick. You know, I'm not saying she's not. Uh, but I know some people think, well, she's not qualified to be on the Fed because she has this crazy idea that we should have a gold standard, which, of course, is not crazy. I mean, that's exactly what we should do. But the mainstream, you know, wants to discredit anybody who believes in such a crazy idea, right, as, as actually having real money and, and having discipline on, on government and government spending. Uh, but the fact that she supports a gold standard, you know, means that she's outside the mainstream. So some people say, well, this disqualifies her from being on the Fed. But then you have other people that think, oh, this is great. You know, maybe we'll go back to a gold standard, right? Hey, we get somebody on the Fed that's advocating for a gold standard, so this could be a game changer. Everybody is wrong, right? Nothing is going to change. A, it doesn't matter that she believes in a gold standard because once you're on the Fed, it doesn't matter what you believe. Your principles go out the window, right? Your job is to, you know, keep the bubble going. I mean, that's what happened with Alan Greenspan. I mean, nobody 
is a bigger gold bug than Alan Greenspan, right? Alan Greenspan was a defender, an advocate of the gold standard. Uh, you know, there are a lot of writings, I mean, in particular, a golden economic freedom from Ayn Rand's capitalism. If you haven't read that article, you should read it. In fact, you should read the entire book. It's a great book. Uh, but Alan Greenspan, to this day, uh, defends the gold standard, even as Fed chairman. He would talk about how great the gold standard was and how he was trying to replicate the gold standard on his own, how he would target the price of gold and use the price of gold to influence his monetary policy. Of course, all that went out the window, right, when things went wrong, like long-term capital management or the 1987 stock market crash or the Asian crisis or whatever happened that caused a problem on Wall Street. Alan Greenspan tossed his principles and cut interest rates and printed money. So he didn't act like he believed in the gold standard because as soon as his beliefs interfered uh, with political expediency or angered the markets, well, he abandoned those principles, which is one of the reasons that I, I you know, I feel that Greenspan did such a bad job, uh, but even worse than uh, Yellen or, or, or Bernanke is because he knew better. He knew the right thing to do and did the wrong thing anyway. I don't know if you could say that about Bernanke or Yellen. They just might be clueless. They had no idea what they were doing. But Greenspan did. And, and that's why, you know, he's so bearish now. When you hear Greenspan talking, he almost sounds like me because he realizes how big the problem is, right? How big the fire is going to get because he lit it, right? And all these clowns are, you know, following his playbook. They just added chapters that have gone far more extreme than anything Allen, you know, may have done. Although who knows, maybe if he had stayed as Fed chairman long enough, he'd have done the same stuff. You know, there's no way to know. Uh, but he was certainly pushing the envelope in that direction when he uh, handed the baton uh, to, to Bernanke. So it really doesn't matter if Judy Shelton gets on the Fed. The Fed's not going to change. And in fact, Shelton is advocating now for rate cuts. She wants interest rates to be lower. Now, if we actually were to return to a gold standard, interest rates would have to go up. Now, maybe in the long run, and they, in fact, in the long run, they would come down because going back to a gold standard would encourage savings, uh, which would mean eventually lower interest rates, and we would have lower inflation under a gold standard than what we have now. And so interest rates could be lower because money would not be losing value over time. But the initial impact of a return to a gold standard would be much higher interest rates. And it would also be a massive recession because the government would have to stop spending money because they wouldn't have it. They can only spend if they had the gold. Uh, they couldn't just run these huge deficits. We couldn't have quantitative easing. It would be impossible under a gold standard. Uh, so this whole thing would implode, and in the short run, rates would go up. So if on the one hand you're saying you believe in sound money in a gold standard where interest rates are determined by the market, not by the Fed, but now you're, 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 you want the Fed to, to lower interest rates, to push them down even lower when they're already artificially low. And the only reason the Fed was able to get them so low was because we're not on a gold standard and we can't return to a gold standard and also make interest rates even lower in the short run. So it's clear that whatever she believes about a gold standard, that's not what we're going to get when she's on the Fed. She wants to keep the party growing. She wants to pretend the economy is doing great. In fact, in her interview on CNBC, she basically talked about how great the economy is and how we shouldn't punish the economy just because Europeans or the Japanese are lowering their rates. We shouldn't raise our rates. I'm not even sure what her rationale was. 
Oh yeah, I thought she said that by raising our rates, it would cause the dollar to go up and a stronger dollar would punish us. And so to keep the dollar from going up, we should follow the lead of the, the, the Europeans and the Japanese and cut our rates so that our currency doesn't rise and punish our economy, which of course is nonsense because your economy isn't punished by a rising exchange rate. It is rewarded. And in fact, Donald Trump tweeted the other day you know, that we need to match the monetary policy of Europe and Japan, uh, that it's not fair that they're debasing their currencies and we should join in. We should do the same thing to even out the playing field, which, again, is nonsense. I mean, maybe Donald Trump's mother never warned him about uh, not jumping off a bridge just because his friends decide to jump off the bridge. I mean, just because the Europeans and the Japanese are doing something dumb doesn't mean that we need to match that by doing something dumb ourselves. But again, I think the main reason that Europe and Japan even went down this road is because of us. We brought them here. We brought them to this party. We're just leaving them there, right? Because initially, when the, the yen really started to rise, right? When the Japanese recession began, you know, decades ago, whatever, in the 80s, uh, late 80s, and the yen started to rise, the Japanese panicked. They thought this was bad. They thought they had to weaken the yen so that Japan could keep exporting to the dollar. So the impetus for their current predicament was to prevent... The, the yen from gaining more value against the dollar. You know, at one point, the dollar went all the way down to 80 yen and the Japanese were in a panic mode. You know, they, I remember reading articles about the dollars that were becoming as worthless as the leaves falling from the trees and the Japanese were panicking. It, it, the Americans should have been panicking, not the Japanese. It was our currency that was going down the toilet, not theirs, but they panicked and they, they, they pursued a monetary policy to debase their currency and lower their rates so to keep the dollar propped up so they can maintain exports to the United States. That was a mistake. And the same thing happened in Europe. I mean, we slashed our interest rates first in 2008 and the Europeans just followed our lead. So we are the, you know, the leading this parade. We are the reason that these countries have gotten themselves into this predicament. Right? And now the world somehow believed that we were the only ones that can extricate ourselves from it, that we were the only ones that can normalize rates and shrink our balance sheet, and everybody else was stuck at zero. That's why we had this big rally in the dollar. Well, one of the reasons the dollar is going to implode is when that has to be priced out, when people have to realize that we're no more successful in getting out of this trap than anybody else, that we're in the same monetary roach motel, that we are going back to zero, we're going back to QE, and it doesn't matter. Yes, I mean, Shelton is the best uh, you know nominee we've had for the SOMC in a while, but look, Greenspan was a great nominee. I was a big fan of Alan Greenspan until he got to the Fed. In fact, I, I put on my Facebook page, if you haven't seen these, the letters I wrote as a young kid. I was in my early 20s, uh, just out of college in 1987, uh, when Greenspan started making mistakes following the stock market crash, and I wrote him a couple of letters, and I put uh, their responses to those letters. I don't have my original letters. I don't know what happened to those, but I did save the letters he wrote me, and I put copies of them on my Facebook page, and they're up there. You can read what Alan Greenspan wrote, a young Peter Schiff, and this was the beginning of the mistakes. Uh, this is what ultimately paved the way uh, for the disaster that we are currently headed for. And again, it's not just an economic disaster. It is a political disaster. It is a slow-moving train wreck. Uh, I guess uh, a early casualty uh, in this train wreck is Justin Amash, uh, who um, 
was one of the better representatives that came to Congress during the Tea Party. You know, when the Tea Party actually cared about big deficits, the big backlash against uh, Barack Obama. And Justin Amash was one of these uh, uh, liberty-oriented candidates, a member of the uh, Liberty Caucus. Uh, you know, he came in with Rand Paul and with Ted Cruz. And there were a lot of, you know, there were some good uh, liberty-minded people uh, that were in the Republican Party. And most of them have pretty much abandoned their principles. But Justin Amash was kind of steadfast to the point where, you know, he ended up leaving the Republican Party. Now, he didn't join the Libertarian Party. He's now, I guess, going to be independent. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back here was uh, Amash came out in favor of impeachment. Now, you know, I don't know that I agree with Amash uh, as to whether or not the president's candidate uh, rises to the level of impeachment. But if that's what he believes, if that's his opinion, then, you know, let him express it. I mean, you know, Donald Trump, of course, is tweeting out how fantastic this is, that, oh, this is great news for the Republican Party, that this disloyal guy is quitting, and that's great. And, you know, I don't think that party loyalty is a good trait in a congressman. That's not what I want in my congressman. I want somebody who's loyal to their own principles. I want someone who's loyal to America and to the Constitution, not his party, right? If somebody thinks their party is doing something wrong, I want them standing up to the party, right? Because I don't care about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I care about liberty, about freedom, about the Constitution, about the country. And I want representatives to defend those things, not to defend their party, because the party is not America. In fact, both political parties have been enemies of America because they both represented bigger government. And none of the parties have honored the oaths that everybody swears to uphold and defend the Constitution. Um, but, you know, instead of Donald Trump maybe uh, being a little circumspect about, hey, why is this guy criticizing me? I mean, he should be uh, on my team and he should be, you know, but now he's my adversary. You know, he's just calling him names, right? He doesn't want to think that, hey, maybe there's something here. But, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. And I do believe that a lot of Republicans are going to have a hard time staying in the Republican Party uh, because I think the party is redefined now as the Trump Party. And what is that? What is the Trump Party? It's the party of big government, big deficits, uh, protectionism, inflation, right? cheap money. Uh, is that the Republican Party? I mean, how many Republicans would say, yeah, that's what they want? They want to run the printing presses, cheap money, uh, huge deficits, never cut entitlements, keep making government bigger, protectionism, tariffs. I mean, does that sound like the Republican Party most people were members of? Not really. So once Trump goes down in flames, which he may very well do in 2020, uh, the party could break apart. I mean, who knows what's going to happen uh, to the party? Because there's going to be a lot of people that want to differentiate themselves from the party that has been rebuilt around Donald Trump. But, you know, by the same token, what about the Democratic Party? I mean, can that party hold together when it's run by socialists, right? When the mainstream is now socialist? I mean, there's got to be some moderate Democrats. I mean, you know, maybe not, but there's got to be, right? So there's got to be some Democrats that don't want to be associated with the Socialist Party because that's really what we've got now. I mean, so we don't have a party of limited government, right? A small government party, freedom, low taxes, low regulation. That party doesn't exist anymore. But we also don't have kind of a, a middle of the road party either that believes in, you know, in what the Democrats theoretically used to believe in. We, we have 
extremes. The, the Democratic Party has moved to the extreme left of the spectrum. And the Republican Party, in many ways, has actually moved left of what the Democratic Party used to be. <laughs> so I mean, we, we could easily try to maybe see Democrats and Republicans leaving. Are they going to form new parties? Are some Republicans going to become libertarians? Are, you know, what are some of the Democrats going to do? They can't go to the Green Party because they're even crazier. Uh, so maybe they'd have to go to independent or something like that. But there's going to be a big change in the political landscape. Now, that could be a good thing because the two-party system has had a vice-like grip on the, the American economy for a long time. Because pretty much if you're not a Republican or a Democrat, you have no chance. And so everybody has to play within one of these two parties. But maybe that will come to an end after 2020, given the way these parties have moved and the number of people within the parties who may no longer feel at home and may be looking for uh, a new party with which to affiliate. We'll see. And I want to finish up uh, today's podcast talking about Bitcoin, which I usually you know, seem to end my podcast these days uh, talking about Bitcoin. But this time, I don't really want to talk about the price of Bitcoin. I mean, it's just a little over 11000 uh, as I am recording, uh, having traded maybe close to 12000 uh, over the last 24 hours and then maybe down as low as 10,600, forget exactly. Uh, but we've been bouncing around but not making any more progress to the upside like a lot of people had expected. But I really want to talk about these articles that have been coming out about me and the fact that, you know, I own Bitcoin. Like I secretly own Bitcoin. Oh, Peter Schiff is a hypocrite, right? He reveals that he owns some Bitcoin uh, therefore, even though he's been publicly trashing Bitcoin, he's been privately buying it up, right? So, you know, it's not only hypocrisy, but I, I really want to own it. I know it's great, but it's bad for my gold business, right? So I have to publicly talk about how bad Bitcoin is so I can keep selling gold. But because I really know how great Bitcoin is, I'm just buying it all up, right, on, on the sly, right? And so this is what the implication is that, you know, I own Bitcoin and I, you know, therefore you shouldn't pay attention to what I say, which is not to buy Bitcoin. You should pay attention to what I'm doing, which is buying Bitcoin, right? Well, I'm not buying Bitcoin. And I try to set the record straight every time I can. I've never bought Bitcoin. Now, of course, yes, I wish I had bought it when I first heard about it. In fact, I've seen other people try to say that this is some kind of admission. The fact that I say I wish I had bought Bitcoin is some kind of admission that I, I, I was wrong and I should have bought it. Look, I would be an idiot not to wish I bought Bitcoin before the bubble really formed when I first heard about it. I mean, obviously, I could have made a lot of money buying Bitcoin for under $100 of Bitcoin and selling it out anywhere along the way, right? I mean, I could have made a lot of money. So why wouldn't I regret that? Clearly, I'd be richer had I done that. But that doesn't change how I feel about it now. And just because I regret not buying it for under 100 doesn't mean that I'm going to buy it for over 10000 Those are two different things. Buying it when very few people knew about it, and I guess in relative you know, price, the price was low because very few people knew about it, and buying it now when everybody knows about it, and it's a huge, gigantic bubble, those are two different things. So you can't you know, gain anything about the fact that I will admit that I wish I had bought it earlier. Because that means nothing about whether I would buy it now. I mean, everybody wishes they would have bought it earlier. I mean, any critic of Bitcoin, whether it's uh, you know Warren Buffett or Nero Rabini, if you say, well, Nero, do you wish you bought some Bitcoin at $10? We're supposed to say no. 
course he wishes he bought it because he could sell it. If he had bought it, he could sell it now, which is exactly what he would do, which is exactly what I would do. You know, if I bought Bitcoin a long time ago and I hadn't already sold it, which I probably would have done, yeah, I'd sell it. So the fact that, that I've made this admission means nothing. It just means that I'm honest, but it doesn't change anything about Bitcoin. But this other thing is that, oh, I'm, I've been secretly buying Bitcoin. I haven't. Now, uh, some of the articles talked about the fact that, um, you know, I admitted that I own some Bitcoin, which I do. And I guess Jeffrey Tucker, uh, who I know, uh, and I've been on some conferences with Jeffrey Tucker, including he was my opponent at the last gold Bitcoin debate I did at Freedom Fest a year ago, right? It was me and another guy against Jeffrey Tucker and another guy. And Jeffrey Tucker was pro-Bitcoin and I was, was anti. And I think right before that debate, I admitted to him that, yeah, I own some Bitcoin and I owned a little uh, uh, Bitcoin cash and Ether. The total amount of my holdings was like a hundred bucks and I didn't buy any of it, right? I, I got it for free. I didn't buy it. People gave me some. And in fact, the Bitcoin that I got, I got from Eric Voorhees after my debate with him in New York. We went out to dinner at a restaurant uh, after the Soho Forum and he took my cell phone he, and, and, he, and he created a wallet for me. I've never even used it. And then he put Bitcoin in there. He transferred uh, $100 worth of Bitcoin and I transferred $50 back and I kept 50 and I had $50 worth of Bitcoin, which is now worth about 80 bucks. And it was worth, it was down to about 20, 30 bucks. And now, you know, now it's rallied back in this, in this recent rally. But that's what I've got. And I admitted to Tucker that I had this, you know, little bit of Bitcoin uh, for the first time. And all of a sudden, it's out there that Peter Schiff owns Bitcoin. Aha, he's a hypocrite. He really owns it. He's a secret Bitcoiner. He's, you know, he's just not telling the truth. And I'm pointing out, I don't own any Bitcoin. So I'm looking on my, on my Twitter feed, and people are talking about, again, the fact that I secretly own Bitcoin. So I, I, ba I pointed out again, I said, I thought I have like 100 bucks worth. That's it. That's all I got. That means nothing. And so then somebody uh, tweeted back and said, Oh, what's your wallet? What's your wallet address? I'll send you a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, right? That's what somebody said. And I, oh, someone wants to send me a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. All right. So I had to try to find my wallet number. I didn't even know where it was because I had never actually given it to anybody because I didn't even, I, I've never, I don't use the app. And other people have told me that I should have a better wallet, that the wallet I got isn't really that secure. I should get a different one, but I didn't even have enough Bitcoin in there that I, that I really give a damn. I mean, if someone hacks it, you know, I would, I don't care. Uh, but in any event, so initially I sent the wrong number and people started making fun of me that I don't even know, like I claim to know Bitcoin, but I don't even know where my wallet number is. I mean, I've never used it. So I eventually found the wallet number and I pasted it into a tweet and I tweeted it back. And now I've got over $2,000 worth of Bitcoin in my wallet. Interestingly, the guy that promised to send me $100 worth, I don't know if he ever sent me any because I don't have any donations anywhere near that large. I forget what the largest one was maybe about 25 bucks. Most of them are smaller than that. But I got a lot of people sending me very small dollar amounts. So as I'm speaking, I've almost got about 2,200 total of crypto in my wallet. 2,140 of it is Bitcoin. And I started with 80. And so I've been given all this other Bitcoin. But now there's all these articles out there about how, you know, I'm accepting all this Bitcoin. And now this is some other proof, you know, that I'm a hypocrite. Because, you know, I've, I've accepted all these Bitcoin gifts. First of all, I don't even know how to reject it, right? I mean, even if I wanted to, the, the money just comes in, or the Bitcoin, rather, just comes in. I don't even know how to stop it. But why would I want to stop it? I mean, if somebody wants to send me some free Bitcoin, I'll take it. 
I mean, I could turn right around and sell it. I mean, I know that there's a market for it now. So the fact that people want to give me some free Bitcoin and the fact that I haven't turned it down doesn't mean that I'm secretly like uh, pro-Bitcoin. I mean, no, it just means I'm not an idiot. I mean, the people who maybe are idiots are the people who are giving me free Bitcoin. Now, I don't know. Maybe they're just generous. I mean, clearly I don't need the money. So why are people giving me Bitcoin? I mean, are they hoping that if they give me some Bitcoin that they're going to convert me over just because I get some? I mean, that's not really going to change. I mean, I think it is kind of cool, right, that you can send it very quickly. And I've, I, I've always admitted that that is one of the good features of Bitcoin, that if I've got it and I want to give it to somebody, I can very easily send it. The problem is what I'm sending has no value. It has market value now because people are willing to buy it, but it may have no market value in the future if nobody is willing to buy it. That is the biggest problem of Bitcoin. Its value is simply a function of perception and demand. And the reason people want it now is because they think they're going to get rich. They think the price is going to go up. Well, if that perception changes, then nobody's going to want it. And therein lies the rub because it can't be a store of value. But, you know, maybe people think if they send it to me, somehow they'll change me around. They'll convert me over. You know, it's kind of like evangelists. You know, they're trying to save my soul. They think if they just preach to me, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be saved and I'll be going to heaven or whatever. Um, you know, maybe they're just my supporters and they just feel like giving me a 4th of July present. That's that's also possible. But maybe it's just because they want these articles. They, they somehow think that my accepting this Bitcoin, now they can all follow my wallet, right? Now that I've, I've put out the address and somehow, oh, Peter Schiff owns Bitcoin, therefore he must support it. Well, if people give me a bunch of free Bitcoin and now I own that free Bitcoin, that means that, I, that I'm in favor of Bitcoin. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense that you get out there, right? They're trying to spin all this crap like that like that golden asteroid nonsense. Now, I've read articles about Psyche now. They're calling it the Midas Rock. I mean, they don't even, we don't even know if there's any gold on that asteroid, let alone to call it the Midas Rock. Even if there is some gold up there, no one's mining it. But this is what you get. You get all these fake stories trying to drive all this interest into Bitcoin. And again... A lot of it has to do with discrediting gold because Bitcoin is being marketed as a disruptor of the gold market, right? Bitcoin is supposed to derive its value from taking market share from gold. So it's not just about talking about why Bitcoin is great. You have to trash gold too because you're trying to convince people to buy Bitcoin instead of gold, right? Not to buy Bitcoin in addition to gold. Now, some people are, are, are advocating that, but... A lot of the uh, advocacy is to buy Bitcoin instead of gold, right? And, and so in order to do that, it's not just about talking about why Bitcoin is so great. It's about talking about why gold is so bad. And obviously, this giant supply of gold floating around in space that somehow is going to make its way down to Earth and destroy the gold market because we're going to be awash in supply. Hey, maybe that's going to scare people out of, out of their gold and into Bitcoin. And the same thing they're trying to do here with this fake story Somehow everybody gives me a bunch of Bitcoin and now Peter Schiff has Bitcoin and now they can write all these stories about how Peter Schiff owns Bitcoin, how he accepts Bitcoin, and therefore he must be an advocate for Bitcoin. Look, I think this is a bunch of nonsense, but you know what? If people in the Bitcoin community want to press this story, keep on sending me Bitcoin. You guys have my wallet, you know, you know, keep on sending them. Let's see, let's see if I can get up to a whole Bitcoin, right? I need about what, 10, 11,000, $11,000 dollars now to get one whole Bitcoin. I'm not there yet, right? I'm, 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 like not, I'm not quite at a fifth of a coin. Uh, so keep sending them to me. I got to decide what I'm going to do with them, right? That's the thing. I got to figure out, do I hodl them? 
you know, just for the hell of it, because, you know, easy come, easy go. I didn't pay anything for it. I mean, I guess that would be the right thing to do is just hodl them uh, because, you know, but of course, people think if I hodl them, I mean, eventually they're going to go to a million and I could just buy a Lambo, right? I mean, that's the, the idea, right? Just keep them until they're a million uh, and then uh, buy my Lambo. Uh, but of course, I can actually cash them out right now and, and, and you know, and buy something real. I can buy something right now uh, with all that, uh, all those free Bitcoins. But I'm not really sure. For now, I mean, out of respect to the people who sent them to me, uh, I may end up just holding on to them. Uh, and then people can follow that wallet and they can see what it's worth. Uh, you know, clearly if I if I sell them, then, you know, people will know that too. Um, but anyway, that's it. Have a great uh, rest of the weekend, everybody. And uh, I'll be, I'm looking forward to... Uh, to the following weeks. I think we're going to see a lot of action in the markets. And again, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody who is coming to Freedom Fest uh, this July. I'm not doing another Bitcoin debate, but I am doing uh, a panel uh, on the global economy. I am doing my own workshop. I will be there at my booth. And so looking forward to seeing everybody at Freedom Fest. If you haven't already uh, signed up, make sure and go on again. Use my, my name, shift, my promo code shift. I think you save like 50 or a hundred bucks off the admission. Uh, so you might as well, uh, uh, use my, my name uh, and get that discount.